Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Dr. Joel Beakey is with the host this week, talking about Puritans and piety. Listen in as they talk with him about cultivating holiness. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how to download a free MP3 from the Alliance. Well, welcome to the Mortification of Spin. Uh, my name's Carl Truman. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird and Todd Pruitt. Today we have a special guest on the show, uh, the Reverend Dr. Joel Beakey. Joel will be well known to many of our listeners, I'm sure, because of his uh, writings and uh, publishing ventures. But to anyone out there who's unfamiliar with the name, Joel has been a pastor for 37 years. He pastors at uh, Heritage Reform Church in Grand Rapids. And he's also president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, Joel has written a large number of books, uh, including a, a significant uh, number which deal with themes in Puritan theology. I first came across Joel's work myself when I read his uh, published doctoral dissertation on the issue of assurance, which was uh, later abridged for uh, an excellent Banner of Truth book on assurance as well. He's perhaps uh, one of his most significant recent works would be the the immense Puritan theology book that he uh, co-wrote with our friend Mark Jones. Joel, it's great to have you on the program. Great to be with you. Maybe we could start by uh, asking a question not directly about the Puritans, but certainly connected to the Puritans. The Puritans are well known as those who place a great premium on a disciplined Christian walk and upon personal holiness. We live in an era where certainly there is a, a, a significant trend within even the, within the Reformed Church at the moment that has come into scrutiny for potential antinomian tendencies. And always for Christians there's a perennial question of what does holiness look like in the particular context in which I, uh, I find myself? Where, where do I have to really think about living life in a way that is radically distinct from what I see uh, going on around me? Um, would you like to, to kick us off by perhaps offering a few reflections on, on the place of holiness in the church today, where you see the problems and what you think some of the, the weaknesses or lacks in the church might be that have led to this? Hmm. Well, I think there's always a danger in an age of <clears throat> shallow Christendom to be satisfied if people just do some initial repenting and initial believing in Jesus and can say they're saved, especially if they get a hold of the doctrines of grace and say, well, I'm saved by grace alone. I'm in Christ. And that's, that's basically all I need. And they look around and the world is so worldly. And if they're not reading um, the forefathers, for example, especially the Puritans, they'll often settle for a substandard Christian walk of life that doesn't really show much of an antithesis with the worldly walk of life. And the tendency then is that also beginning with ministers and theological professors down to common lay people, that Christianity as a whole can be watered down in terms of the imperatives of First Peter 1, 15, 16, be holy as I am holy. 
and the intentional lifestyle of living uh, in a trajectory of seeking to grow in holiness and looking to God and, 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 and grace and wanting to be more holy, more believing, more assured, more fruitful, uh, more longing for Christ to come. That kind of burden in a believer's life just does not exist in the lives of many Christians today. So antinomian tendencies find fertile ground in shallow, in shallow Christendom. But where people have been trained and, and molded, and that, that it's like in a good marriage, you know, you enter into a state of marriage, but if you have a really good marriage, you want to keep growing in that marriage, and you want it better and better and deeper and more substantive. Um, and a lot of people are in shallow marriages and they don't even realize what they're missing. So they just coast along. Uh, I look at it this way. I ask people when they come to me for mar- to, to perform their wedding, I, they might say, um, I might say to them, on a scale of 1 to 10, what kind of a marriage do you want? And, and they all say 10. But uh, 10 years later, you know, many of them settle for 4 or 5. And they're not going to get divorced, but, you know, eh, mediocre marriage. That's the way a lot of Christians are acting today. And I, I look at them and say this. I think the Reformers would say to them, the Puritans would say to them, and I would say to them, look, if Christ is real, Christianity is real, it deserves our very best. It deserves excellence. I want to be an excellent, mature Christian despite all my indwelling sin. So I want to, I want to struggle in the Christian life. I want to grow in holiness. Lord, help me. I've read some statistics uh, before that men tend to think they rate their marriage as better than the, than the wives do um, if they don't have the conversation together and then they'll go to counseling or, or something like that. And when you said that, it made me think about that and how so often – I think we rate our own sanctification and holiness a lot higher than it actually is. I mean, is it even possible to coast along in the Christian life as, as people think that they're doing sometimes? Mm, that's a very good question. I, I don't think so. I think it's a holy war. Mm-hmm. And holiness is a tricky thing because the more you have of it, the less you think you have of it, really. Right, right. Uh, it's like a... You know, if you come and you dust the table before the sun comes out, you think you've got all the dust and the sun comes out, you come back in, it's like more dust than ever before. But there's not really more dust there, there's less, but you feel like there's more. And so the more holy you get, really the closer to God you're getting. Really in holiness, you're being conformed uh, to the attributes of the Father, you're being conformed to the image of the Son, and you're being conformed to the mind of the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian thing. And the closer you get to God in all of his persons, the more unholy you're going to feel yourself to be. Mm-hmm. Hence the cry of Romans 7, the struggle, O wretched man that I am. So one reason, interestingly, why I think that women often rate their marriages lower is that women are, tend to be a little bit more relational-oriented mm-hmm. than men, men a little more task-oriented as a whole. And I think when you're more relational-oriented, you're looking for something, a deeper satisfaction. Right. And a true Christian is to be relationally-oriented to God so he wants deep satisfaction. I want intimacy with God if I'm a Christian. And today, too many Christians don't, don't want that intimacy. Now, the, the flip side danger of that, of course, is that you can, you can become overly introspective and you can become too obsessed with your own lack of progress or progress and always struggling with that all the time. Uh, we're not agitating for that. But we would advocate today 
that the big need of the day is for a greater commitment to the imperatives of Scripture in holiness. Yeah, that's a good point, and I, and I think you, you raised it uh, in, in understanding that, that, that the area where the, the typical evangelical is struggling is not striving too much for holiness. Um, we, we understand as a category, a person can be so introspective that they rob their lives of joy, but that's typically not what we're struggling. And, and so one of the things that we've appreciated about what you do is you're one of the few guys out there that is actually still writing about holiness and mortifying sin. And and as we on this program have bemoaned the, uh, the condition of the Christian publishing in this industry and, and the books that sell, we look at books that men like yourself are writing. Still, there's, there's still a few people out there challenging us on holiness. Now, this is important. I'm a pastor in the PCA, and there's been some rather public uh, debates about antinomianism in my uh, denomination. And some real disagreements over how, for instance, the imperatives of Scripture are to be handled. On the one hand, you'll have some that seem to advocate that the only thing to do with an imperative of Scripture is the only reason it's there is to show us that Christ obeyed it without ever really calling us. If you were chatting with a young pastor um, who is seeking counsel on how to challenge his people with the imperatives of Scripture without being guilty of legalism, but to do justice to those imperatives, what would you say to him? Well, Martin Luther said... A justification is Christ for us. Sanctification is Christ in us. And I'd probably begin there that we, as important as holiness is to be tied always to Christ. I mean, Augustine already said, the way to holiness is always in a Christological path. Mm -hmm. And he said, better to, better to crawl along that path than to run outside that path. Mm -hmm. So never divorce your holiness from Christ. That would be disastrous because then it would become a, a works-oriented legalism. But once you're saved in Christ and you're justified in Christ, you then must crawl along that path <laughs> because you want Christ in you working these things out so that you become more holy like, like your Father in heaven. And so... The reason people like me do feel burdened to write about holiness is because ultimately, I think R.C. Sproul said this once too. I remember him at a conference saying this. The reason I write so much about holiness is because I feel so unholy and I need it for myself. And I think I'm just amazed. I've been a Christian now for what, 46 years, 48 years, 48 years. And I'm just amazed how little progress I've made in holiness. And it, it, it embarrasses me how easily I can still stumble. So I need this. Right. Um, Bob Godfrey from Westminster Seminary uh, in California once said to me that um, in sermons, he, he, he likes to get beat up a little bit mm -hmm. to, to drive him yeah. to realize, I'm not, I haven't arrived in my sanctification. I need to be spurred on. I need to be Calvin put it this way, I need to be goaded. Like like I'm still like a donkey sometimes. I'm just stubborn, and I need to be goaded with the law to, to go forward and, and to seek the face of my Savior more and to live more holy, live more, live more with the single eye, thy name to glorify, that type of theology. So when it's done in a Christological way and word-based way, I preach those, I would say to the pastor, preach those imperatives to the full. Right. And uh, 
don't don't shy away. Don't say to people, I don't want to make you feel guilty in any right. way. You know, go after them. And, and we need to feel guilty. We need to be driven. Yeah. And we need to reassess ourselves. Mm-hmm. We need to examine ourselves. And above all, we need to be more like Christ. Conform me, Lord. Conform me to the image of Christ. Yeah. That must be my passion. And that needs to come through in preaching. Yeah, because it seems as though in some circles that, that can kind of find their way attached, some movements can kind of find their way attached to to, uh, to the Reformed world generally, Seem to be there seems to be an embarrassment over the fact that the New Testament does use language of striving. Mm-hmm. We can't escape the fact that Paul uses athletic metaphors and other language of striving in regard to sanctification, and that that's not a prescription for legalism. But we really do have to deal with that language, that there's somehow yeah. a grace-driven striving. Yeah. Here's, I think, what's happening from my perspective, and I'm not, I don't know all the ins and outs of, of all these debates really too, too terribly well, but I think some of the people that have been involved in these debates, they grew up in an atmosphere where you had to read so many chapters of the Bible per day, you had to do devotion so long, and it, there was some kind of legalism in the atmosphere, and when they found the gospel, it was a relief, and they felt right. the burden was thrown off, and so now they're not striving as hard for holiness anymore because they're saved by grace alone. Right. And it's been that, an overcorrection, maybe. Yeah, that's right. You, you can, you know, the Puritans used to say um, you don't correct an imbalance with imbalance because when you correct imbalance with imbalance, you get imbalance. <laughs> well, you were talking about how easy it is to stumble, but you've written about a, a very short, accessible book about something much more serious, and that is backsliding. Mm. I believe your book's called Getting Back Into the Race, Mm -hmm. published by Cruciform Press. And and one thing I like about Cruciform is they do these very accessible books that are just, you know, 100 pages or less. And I I got so much out of that little book. Um, I've been recommending it to so many people because one of the problems with writing a book about backsliding is that you're probably not going to read it when you're backsliding. Mm -hmm. So it's it's good to probably read it beforehand (laughs) to help avoid that. But you... In it, you define it as a season of increasing sin and decreasing obedience in those who profess to be Christians. So I wanted to ask you, how is backsliding different from our regular fight that we and striving, our regular fight with sin? Yeah. I think when you have a regular fight with sin and your, your Christian life is on a trajectory of wanting to obey God every day and you're beginning every day with prayer and there's an earnestness and there's a holy war, as Bunyan would call it, going on inside of you, that's, that's a healthy sign. Mm-hmm. When you're backsliding, things are dormant for you spiritually. There's no, there's no activity. You're, 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 you're inching back to the world and you, you're not in the Word. Things aren't fresh. Things aren't real. Um, it's almost like you're acting as if you weren't saved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John Preston, one of the Puritans, defined it this way. He said, um, when a woman is pregnant, say she's five months pregnant, I forget how many months he said, but he, he said, if she feels no movement, she says, what, what's happened to me? My, my child is dead. And the problem is there are Christians, when they feel no movement to God, and there's no action in their life, no diligent use of the means of grace, no, no reality in their Christianity every day. They tend to just not say anything, just go on. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace. Meanwhile, there's no activity, and they there should no be concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they should be concerned and say, backsliding is a terrible dishonor to God. God mm-hmm. is worthy of our whole heart, our whole life. 
So I think what's happened in some circles today is then there's almost an embarrassment because of this overreaction. There's almost an embarrassment with what John Kelvin called piety. And Kelvin said, I wrote the whole institutes to promote pietas, piety. And today, piety is a bad word. I'm trying trying to go around and revive that word and say, this is a good word. Because piety means really fearing God with a tender childlike fear. And I think this attitude is across the board uh, in our Christian lives, even the way we pray casually, the way we read casually, the way we talk flippantly about spiritual things. I think that's what the Puritans bequeathed to us, just an attitude of the fear of God, a reverence. And when they went to prayer, they really prayed in their prayer. It wasn't just a few words and casual. Now we lecture, you know. No, the prayer was important. In, 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 in piety, like Kelvin says, our whole life ought to be one continuing, unending exercise of pietas. And that's, that's what I think is missing today. So what would your, as a, as a pastor, what would your response be to, to somebody who's backsliding? What are the cures for backsliding? What would be the, the Puritan advice to that person sitting in your office saying, Pastor, I feel no joy in the Lord anymore. I've lost interest in reading the Bible. I'm wandering away, and I don't care. How yeah, would you respond I think to the that? Puritan response would be to, to read Revelation 2. Um, the Church of Ephesus lost their first love. Remember, repent, and return. Remember from where you've fallen. Um, remember what it was like in the, those days of first love. Uh, it was very good. Your, your life was vibrant. And, and, and realize what you're missing. And then repent. Repent, because... God is unworthy that you would depart from them. It's a shame. And then return. Return, believe as you first believed, and get back in the means of grace. Use diligently the spiritual disciplines. Wait on him for seasons of ritual grace, but persevere even against yourself, against your natural tendencies. Discipline yourself. Persevere. Wait on God. He will bless you in due time and restore you. That's good. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned in, in a lot of your answers, you, you keep going back to the Puritans, and of course, you're a great Puritan man, Joel, and uh, probably one of the, you would never say this about yourself, I'm sure, but many of us look to you and and regard you as one of the people, certainly in the last 20 or 30 years, who has done most to keep reading the Puritans alive and uh, through your Reformation Heritage books have provided uh, beautiful quality productions of of old Puritan classics for for the current uh, generation. but we live in a world where, you know, even if you look at English style, English style is moving towards shorter sentences. And uh, people are not, we're told, not reading as much as they used to be. Where would you advise somebody to begin reading the Puritans? Mm. If I'm a, in my congregation, I got a young guy comes up to me and says, you know, I've never read the Puritans. I picked up a volume of John Owen. Wow, the first sentence was a page and a half long. <laughs> I, I was lost after about six lines. What would you say to, to the person say, okay, Set that volume of O in aside. You need to go here, and this right. will help ease you into the Puritan world. Yeah, I would say don't don't start with O. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, well, we've we've done two things at Reformation Heritage Books, which uh, I think are helpful, and that has been motivated precisely by your question. Um, the first thing is we've established a series of books called Puritan Treasures for Today. And what we do is we take short Puritan treatises on very relevant topics. They're like 100 pages, like the cruciform books you're just mentioning. And we edit them thoroughly, uh, breaking down the sentences, um, changing words, 
but giving the same meaning, but making it contemporary. So like it, it reads like it was written yesterday. A few of the illustrations are hard to do that with, but for the most part. And, um, and we sell them for 6 $7. And um, we've, we've sold tens of thousands of those, and people are really getting into them. So I'd recommend that as a route to go. And then uh, James LaBelle and I have also started another series in which we take um, six or seven Puritan tomes written on a given subject that's not being written well about today. Uh, we did one on the promises of God. There aren't many good books on the promises mm-hmm. of God. and aren't many good books on zeal. We did that book as well. Now we're actually working, uh, working on a book on marriage, and we're then going to work on one on conscience. But we take six or seven books. So you read, say, 2,000 pages of Puritan literature, and then you give it back in a contemporary way and just say in, say in the foreword, this is basically what the Puritans said, and we're, we're giving it out in contemporary way today. So that reads very easily, and we're doing those in about 150-page paperbacks. So those are two ways to begin reading the Puritans. Um, once you pursue those ways and, and you get into the Puritans, what happens, I mean, thousands and thousands of people is they say, wow, these guys are they're weighty. They're they're substantive. They're spiritual. They're, they, they, there's something about their writing that goes a lot deeper than than the typical books I'm reading. What else can I read? And then that's when I say, well, then try Thomas Watson in the original. I knew you were going to say and, Thomas Watson. <laughs> Excellent. And maybe John Bunyan or John Flavel. Yeah, yeah. And you know, once you start reading it, and, you, and your interest is that way, and, you, and your, your mind is more spiritually oriented to the substance of what they're saying, you're willing to struggle a little bit to get the meat. But probably begin with one of these two ways and then go to some of the easier Puritans. One good thing about Watson, and, you, and you'll know this, of course, is that his sentences are very short. Mm-hmm. And he's very cryptic and succinct. And there's, there's a world of meaning in a drop of language. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he's, he's, he's very helpful for people to read. Indeed. Yeah. And why would you say people should read the Puritans? I mean, someone might be listening and saying, yeah, oh, that's how you get into them. But oh, why how, much, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you some quick reasons. Um, one reason is, I've hinted at it already, I think their level of spirituality is just um, far greater, deeper than any other group of writers in church history. Um, they also aren't afraid to rebuke you, to, to press home your conscience, and to lead you to seek God's face with more earnestness. Uh, they're not always congratulating you for your progress in the Christian life. They're challenging you. That's that's very good. I, I know I'd get spiritually lazy if I didn't, if I read books that always complimented me how far I've gone. Um, yeah. a, another thing they do is they give you a good theology of affliction, yes. and um, they teach you how to respond. They really, really do teach you that the purpose of life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And um, the fourth the fourth thing about the Puritans I think that is so so valuable is they teach us to live ultimately for eternity. There's always one eye on eternity. And so they would say, keep every, everything you do in this life, keep an eye for eternity. And then finally, I think this would be a good reason too, is that the Puritans, more than any other group of writers I know, are taking doctrine and they're always bringing it into practical life. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that you believe this doctrine, how is that going to impact your role as a husband? How is it going to impact your work? What's your attitude to work? You know, Puritans are not TGIF people. They're TGIM people. Thank God it's Monday. Mm. We're going to live seven days for the glory of God. We're going to enjoy our work. We're going to enjoy our marriages. We're going to enjoy our family. We look around and say, everything has come to me through the right arm of God's mercy in Jesus Christ, not through the left arm of his forbearance. Mm. And so I must dedicate my whole life to Jesus Christ. That's good.
Speaking of a theology of affliction, um, I just I always go back to Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Evil of Evils. Mm. I just find that book so um, both convicting in a very deep way, and then also just really encourages me to you know just point you right to Christ. Mm. And every, and it's just a compilation of sermons, really. So it's yeah. very accessible to read. Yeah, ninety five percent of Puritan books are actually a compilation of right. sermons. Yeah. Um, the neat thing about that book, or not neat thing, the profound thing about that book, and if you just lay hold of his, his major theme in that book, which is that there is more evil in the smallest sin than there is in the greatest, greatest affliction. affliction. Wow. And then I he mean, shows yeah. how Christ took on, how we will take on great sin to avoid yeah. small affliction, yes. and how Christ took on the greatest affliction to pay the cost for, I mean, without sinning, to pay the cost for all of our exactly. sin. Doesn't that point to the one of the things we've mentioned a couple of times on this program, though, that one of the, the root problems affecting the church at the moment is a lack of a sense of God's holiness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we go back to the antinomian thing. A lot of these, the neo-antinomians cite Martin Luther as an authority, but, of course, Luther was, in 1528, he makes that point that just preaching grace isn't enough. You've got to preach the holiness of God for the preaching of the grace of God to make any sense. Yeah. Grace makes no sense. It doesn't mean anything unless it's set against the background of, of God's holiness. Well, Luther also said this beautiful statement. That when people accuse Luther of not stressing holiness or sanctification, I like to quote this statement where he says, um, the law of God is like a stick. First, God uses it to beat us to Christ. <laughs> and after we're in him, he, he puts it in our hand like a cane to walk the Christian mm -hmm. life. Oh, and really when we good, walk yeah. it with a cane, we get help from the law. The law fences us around in every area of the Ten Commandments. Every area is a sphere of life, and it fences us around so that we can walk more godly. The only difference between Luther and Calvin, in my mind, is that Calvin just put more emphasis there and Luther less. It wasn't that there was an essential difference. Mm-hmm. One thing that really troubles me about our podcast sometimes is when I want to keep talking about these yes. topics and we have to wrap it up. And I'm just so thankful to have had this conversation with you. Dr. Beeky, just thanks for being with us today. And um, maybe we should close by quoting from Hebrews uh, 12, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So thanks for listening and uh, please visit our website mortificationofspin.org and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. If you want to go more in-depth on today's topic, head over to mortificationofspin.org and download Sinclair Ferguson's talk entitled John Owen, A Reformed Biography. And make sure to catch next week's episode. I want to just kind of pick each other's brains on this whole subject of the Lord's Supper from a Reformed standpoint. And probably the best place to start would be just a little bit of, of history um, because in the early days of the Protestant Reformation, there was some division over the meaning of the Lord's Supper, Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, you know, how is it a means of grace, how is grace conferred, that sort of thing. Don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to read blog posts from Carl, Amy, and Todd, and to find your free download.
Okay. Gotta leave here and go dig up my Puritan books and read them again. <laughs>